You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it's great to see you. First Peter is where we are, so you're going to need a Bible. If you need a Bible, um, look under your seat. Maybe every three or four seats, something like that, should have one there. So if you need to borrow one, feel free to, to borrow that. Or if you need a Bible, feel free to take that home with you. It's yours. And so 1 Peter is where we are. If, if you've stumbled in, this is your first time, we are in the middle of a, a set of sermons on 1 Peter. Um, this is our seventh one. And if you've been here over the last couple, um, we have, we've, 1 Peter takes a turn at verse 12 and 13. In, in verse 13, there is this word, therefore, that, that bridges um, all that has been talked about in, in 1 through 12 with the rest of the book. And, and if you've been here, you know we spent several weeks in 1 through 12, where essentially it is just cram-packed full of gospel declarations. These statements of fact about what God has done on your behalf through Jesus. And then in verse 13, the whole, turn, or the whole tone of, of the letter turns with that word, therefore. So, so in verse 13, you have a shift from this is what God has done for you. The word therefore in verse 13. Now in light of that, this is what you do. And, and we've lived in this um, first command of, of really the, the, the book. Um, the last couple of weeks, if we've, we, as we've looked at this call from Peter on our life to, to live holy. To, be, to live holy lives. Lives that are set apart for God. At God's full disposal. The single passion and God is at the center of that. So, so it's this holy living that, that Peter has called us to. Now here's what's about to happen this morning and really for the rest or the next chapter and a half is Peter's about to take this general call to holiness and he's about to apply it to various situations and circumstances. So as you start reading through in chapter two, you're gonna see him apply it to how you submit to a government. You're gonna see him apply it to how you would submit to masters in a workplace, how he would apply it to you suffering unjustly. In, in chapter three, you're gonna see him apply it to um, a marriage, a difficult marriage. So you're gonna start watching him apply it um, to, to a variety of circumstances. And so that's where we pick it up in verse 22 today um, as Peter applies it really to the church and your relationships in general, how holiness works itself out kind of in, in community here. And, and so get ready, verse 22, it's a difficult command. So, so let's look at it, verse 22. Clarifying holiness, Peter says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, here's the command. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. And then chapter two, verse one, is, is, is kind of a continuation of this command where he says, in light of you loving one another, chapter two, verse one, put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So, so Peter is looking at, at, at his suffering saints that he's writing to and he's saying this is how holiness fleshes itself out. It, it fleshes itself out in this call for you to love one another, for you, for you to love. Okay, now with that, we've got to do some major work and drill into this and dig into this idea of what it means to, to love one another. So we'll start here with trying to define what this command means. What does it mean when, when Peter says, love one another? And I think we would all agree here that our, just the, culturally, there is a lot of confusion with this, 
with the idea of love in general. That when our, when our culture thinks about love, or maybe you think of it this way. If you ask 10 people um, what, what love is, you'd probably get 10 different responses, and half of those would be really embarrassing to listen to, Right? There's a, there's a wide variety of what people think about this idea. And when you look at our culture and, and the way we use in our language the word love, you can see why it is that people are so confused about it. Uh, because it's used to, to cover so much territory. So think about the word love. We would say um, we love the cowboys. We would say we love the rangers, or at least used to, right? We would say that we love um, good food. So maybe it's a steak for you. Maybe it's Taco Bell for you. Hopefully it's not. Um, so, so we would say we love, um, I mean, you, you name it. There's a thousand. We love our hobby. We love our TV show. We love this movie. We, we, we love all this stuff. And then we love our spouse. Now, is that not weird that you could say, I love the Cowboys and I love my spouse? Same word. I mean, just, just a encouragement to our young single ladies. If a guy says he loves you, I would make sure it's not the Cowboys sort of love, Right? And, and so it, it just covers so much territory. It's, it's, it's used to mean so much that it doesn't mean anything in our culture. I mean, this is the problem with it. So the, the first thing we've got to do is make sure we clarify what the command means. We've got to make sure we get a good definition of this command. So, so here you go. If you want a definition, I think this one would, would help you. Uh, love defined goes like this. It is desiring and acting in the best interest of another as those best interests are defined by God. And I'll say that one more time. It's desiring and acting in the best interest of another as those best interests are defined by God. So maybe you could take it in two parts. The first one is the best interest part. It means that you are wanting and you are working for the best interests of other people that you're wanting it and you're working for it, that you desire it and you're actually doing something to accomplish it. See, love is not neutral. Love is not, well, I didn't kill them. Love is positive. Love is I went out of my way to do something good. Love is I went out of my way to pursue their best interest. See, it's not a neutral issue. It is you actually doing something on the positive side of the scale. Love is you wanting and you working for the best interest of another person. And this is, by the way, what makes love so difficult for us, is it requires you to prioritize the, the interest of other people over your own. It requires um, this crucifixion of self. It, it requires that that idol of self be dethroned and dismantled in your heart. It requires all of that to love people. It requires you prioritize them over you. So, so it's you wanting and you working for the, the greatest good, the best interest of those around you. Okay, now here's the second part of the command. That those best interests are the greatest good is defined by God. So, so you don't have the, the right to define greatest good. God defines it and we work toward it. Okay, this is love. God defines the greatest good and then we want and we work for the greatest good, the best interest of those that are around us. Okay, now notice the difference in that definition and I think how a lot of our culture would think about love. Um, most of the time when, when love is used in our culture and in our language, it has a sentimental feel to it. It is all about emotion and feelings. And I'm not saying that there's not, that's not a part of this because there is a desire for it. There is a wanting for it. But, but I'm saying it's not primarily a sentimental feeling. 
right? When you look at this idea of love, it is a more of a posture of the heart, an attitude of the heart. It's us wanting their, their good, and it's us pursuing their good. So, so rather than falling in and out of love, like we would so often think about it, love is more of something that you step into, and by God's grace, you stay in regardless of what they do. It's not a feeling that you just fall out of. It's a commitment that you stay in, that you're working for, you're wanting their best good regardless of what they're doing. Okay, so, so this is love defined. Okay, now, now maybe we could just stop here and, and throw out the first question for you. D- does this sort of a love characterize your life? Does it mark the way that you live? Prioritizing the good of other people, not just neutral to other people, but, but you actually wake up with the intent of today, I'm going to express love to people by working and wanting their best. I mean, you have that happening. Okay, now I want to take a step back from 1 Peter and, and this command specifically and kind of show you the wider context of how often you see this command in the Bible. That this isn't like a peripheral thing. This is right at the center of, of what God has called you to be and do as a Christian. So just watch this play out in various authors throughout the New Testament. We'll start with Peter. He gives this command in 122, but then if you go on to 1 Peter 4, um, chapter, verse 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, you see it again. And all these are going to be up on the screen. If you want to write down the reference, go for it, but they're going to be up here for you, so you don't have to turn there. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8 goes like this. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, fervently, zealously, since love covers a multitude of sins. Isn't that a beautiful thing about love? That it covers a multitude of sins? Um, listen to, to Paul as he describes it. First Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge, here's what we're getting at, he's saying, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. First Corinthians 13, one of the, the most well-known passages on love, he says this, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong and clang, or a clanging cymbal. Now, are you a clanging cymbal, noisy gong, Right? Or, or is love characterizing how you interact with people? Galatians 5, um, 14. I think this is a fitting verse for the church to read. Listen to what Paul says here. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. So, so all the laws that are in the Bible fulfilled in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Like if you've got that going, it's evidence of a redeemed heart and it's evidence that grace has actually rocked your heart and wrecked your life and is actually redeeming some things in you. So you shall love the neighbor as yourself. Verse 15. But if, and how many churches are characterized by this? But if you bite and devour one another, in your language, in your speech, if you're biting and devouring, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. He he goes on, uh, Colossians 3, 14, and above all of these things, above all these, put on love, which binds together, uh, everything together in perfect harmony. Romans 13, 8, owe no one anything except to love one another. Um, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And this is how you imitate God. Uh, verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Listen to these words of Jesus in John 13. Um, verse 34 and 35 says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, one another just as I've loved you. So that's the standard. Then, then you love one another. Verse 35, and listen to that why it's so important that we actually have this going on here. He says, by this, by, by you loving one another, the way, the way you seek, the way you want, the way you work for it, the best interest of those around you, the way you do that, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
And then John, um, in 1 John 4, 7 and 8, listen to these sobering words from John. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God. So if if you love, it's evidence that you've been born of God and, and knows God. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. I mean, let, let that be sobering for you. I, I love what J.C. Ryle says about um, these commands in the Bible. He says this, I shall make no comment upon these texts. I think it, it's better to place them before my readers, in his case, in their naked simplicity and to let them speak for themselves. If anyone is disposed to think the subject of this paper, Christian love is what he's writing about, a matter of insignificance, I will only ask him to look at these texts and to think again. He that would take down love from the high and the holy place it occupies in the Bible and treat it as a matter of secondary importance must settle his account with God's word. So so I I just want you to see this is a central thing for you. If you're a Christian in here, this this is around the center of what God has called you to do and what God has called you to be. The Puritans used to call Christian love or, or brotherly love, this sort of love that we're talking about, they used to call it the queen of Christian graces. The queen. It's important. It's at the top. It's at the center. It's the queen of Christian graces. And listen, this is the challenge for, I think, a lot of us in the room. A lot of you, this is your like 3.4 billion sermon you've heard on love. And so the, the, the issue is not a matter of familiarity to you. You probably have heard this. You probably know this. The, the issue is, are you living in it? Does this mark you? Does it characterize how you live, how you think, the flavor of your relationship? Does it characterize it? And maybe just to press all that one step forward, This is one of the sure marks that you are a Christian or one of the sure marks that you are not a Christian of how holiness fleshes itself out in brotherly love. I think it's interesting. When you you read the book of 1 John um, and and you read that through the lens of examining yourself, like like the Bible Paul's going to call you to do periodically, to examine yourself to make sure you're in the faith. And if you read through 1 John with that lens, it would give you three lenses by which to examine yourself. Three lenses by which you can, can, can ask the question, is this there? And if this is there, I can be confident that, that God has redeemed my heart, that God has saved me, he's rescued me, that, that he's done this work of grace in me. And those three lenses, one in 1 John is a theological lens. There's, there's things you have to know. That God sent Jesus to live a sinless life in, in place of your sinful life, to die an undeserved death in place of your deserving death, raised again on the third day, and then you place your faith and your trust in that. Okay, so, so there's a theological lens of that. You've got to know those things and, and surrender to those things. But then there's a social or a, a moral lens to it. That, 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 that has to produce a way of living. That, that this is James, that faith without works is dead, that it produces a, a way of living that is, that is distinctly Christian. But then there's a social component to it, that it also shows itself out in brotherly love. This is 1 John 4, 8, 7 and 8, that if you've been born of God, this is what happens to you, that this new DNA is in you and it comes out in brotherly love. And if that is not happening, if it's not being expressed, that means that DNA has not been placed in you, that you don't know God. So, the, so those three lenses, a theological, a moral, and, and then a social. And, and so let me just ask you this morning, if you're looking at your life through that lens, examining your heart, is that social component there? It is, is, is love for one another coming out and splashing out onto other people? Has God done that to your heart? 
where you're seeing this evidence of grace in your life. And this is not in a earn your salvation sort of a sense. This is in an evidence of your salvation sense. Do do you see the work of God in you producing this around you? That, That you're actually prioritizing the interest of others over your own. That this is splashing out onto other people. And this, is, this should be a sobering, a sobering command when you look back and see the central importance of this in, in the Christian life. Okay, so, so Peter's going to keep going here, and he's going to clarify what this call to love one another looks like. And he gives us um, four words to help describe what, what this sort of love for one another, this prioritizing the interests of others, wanting it and, and working for it, what it looks like in, in our lives. And look at it in verse 22 here, these four words. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a, here's word number one, sincere, here's word number two, brotherly love, love one another earnestly, word three, from a pure heart. So let's just take these three or four words here. Number one, sincere. What does it mean to love sincerely? Like this sincere sort of a love. Maybe you could think of it this way. It means your external actions correspond to your internal feelings. So external actions correspond to what's happening on the inside. So if I walked up to you and I said, I love you, but inside I hate you, that's not, that's not sincere love, right? That's not the outward actions corresponding to the inward feelings. So it's what's inside of you being expressed externally. That's sincere. Okay, so maybe just as an application point here, let me drill down into one of the, I think, the misconceptions of love in our culture, I think a lot of people confuse love with nice. And, and so we, we have this, this weird image that, that love is, I, I'm always nice to people. And listen, I'm not downplaying you should be not. You should be. But I, I would say this. Some of you are too nice. You're nice at the expense of love. So you can be nice in a way that is not love. See, I mean, it is possible for people to, to, to be so nice, so, so scared about what other people are going to think that they would never say a word that might offend, never say a word that might actually confront sin, n- never do anything to kind of, you know, ruffle the water, n- n- just so afraid of, of how people are going to respond, what they're going to say, so afraid of that, that, that they never speak the truth in love. That, that's not love to be that nice. That's actually like the opposite of love. That's apathy toward them to be that nice. Uh, maybe you could think of it with this way, with, with imagining a doctor, two doctors. He, here's doctor number one, and you pick which one you would like. Doctor number one, when you come in his office, he's, he's nothing but a hug. You come in and it's bear hug. This is the doctor that's so scared to offend you, so scared to say anything that might, might, might kind of ruffle you, so, so scared of all that, that when he looks at the scan that says there's cancer in that person, that, that he lets you leave without even telling you. Okay, that, that's, one, that's one doctor. Here's doctor number two. Now, he loves you. He, he's sensitive toward you, but, but he is not overly concerned about what you feel. He's not overly concerned about ruffling the waters. If, if the waters need to be ruffled, he'll, he'll ruffle them. And so he looks at the scan and sees there is cancer there. He comes into the office and says, this is difficult news for you to hear and it's even more difficult for me to deliver, but you are seriously sick. And if we don't start right now, you are going to die of this. Now, now, which doctor would you like? I, I'll take that one any day of the week. But some of us are so nice that we are doctor number one. We are the doctor that would never think of speaking a, 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 a hard word at someone else for, for so much fear of what they're going to think. See, love is speaking truth to people. 
Love is going after their best interests. And when other people are hell-bent on their worst interests, it means that if you're going to love them, it's going to require a confrontation. It's going to require truth being spoken into that. That, that, that is a part of what love is. Okay, now here's what happens um, in this conversation in a room like this. There's two general categories of people in the room. Um, there, there's one category of us in here who when we hear conflict, we go into like paralysis. We run from it. Conflict like gives us a rash just to think about it. And so it just, I mean, the, 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 just the thought of a hard word to somebody, like actually speaking truth into a situation, just the thought of that is terrifying. Here's what the call of, of this sort of sincere love I think needs to sound like for you. That, that you need to get over your cowardness. That you need to get some still in your spine. And you need to stop cloaking like the, the vice of cowardness in the virtue of love. Because being a coward when, when truth needs to be spoken is not loving. It's not. It's the opposite. It's apathy toward them. And so some of us need to hear that. That this is a call for you to be a person who will speak the truth in love to people. Okay, now there, there's this other set of, of people in the room who you are the people that when you hear conflict, you just start smiling. You love it. You wake up thinking about it. It's like a love language for you. I mean, you, you just, it just, it comes out naturally for you. you. You just wake up thinking, how can I get into a confrontation today? Who, who can I look at around here? What sin can I find to speak into? Okay, there's this other group that, that you run, maybe even in an unhealthy way to confrontation. And, and so I think this, this word of sincere love for you might, might need to sound like this, that you need to stop cloaking kind of in, in the, the vice of, of insensitivity. You need to stop cloaking your insensitivity, that vice, in the virtue of love. That, that there's a reason why it says speak the truth in love. See, it's not just truth. It's not just beating people up. It's not just sitting people down so you can club them with it. It's actually speaking the truth in a loving way. Okay, so the point is for both of those two crowds in the room, some need the rough edge knocked off of them and some need a rough edge on them. For, but for both of us, for both sides, here's the point. There is times when sincere love demands you speaking the truth in love. It demands it. Like maybe you could think of it this way as you think about these two different groups of people. Think of the metaphor of you washing a stain in your kitchen on the floor. Maybe it's on the tile. See, unless you are a single guy living in a bachelor pad, you're going to address the stain. It's, you're going to do something with it. You're not just going to leave it there. See, leaving it there would be the, I, I never do anything, confrontation. I, what are they going to, that, that's that crew. You're going to do something with it. You've got to do something. There's a stain in the middle of your kitchen floor. Okay, now here, here's this side, the insensitive, like, insensitive crowd. They get the five-gallon bucket, fill it with water, put some cleaner in there, and they take the whole bucket and just throw it in the middle of the kitchen. I mean, it, it's, it ruins everything, splashes everywhere. Okay, so, so hear me. Speaking the truth in love is taking the appropriate amount of water, the appropriate amount of cleaner, the appropriate utensil, and applying the appropriate amount of all of that to a stain. That, that's what we're going for here. It's speaking the truth in an appropriate way, at an appropriate time, and in a language that's most likely to be heard. Okay, so, th so that's the issue. And listen, we need more of that around here. We need more of that. I, I honestly, I don't think enough of that is happening. And some of that is because our lives aren't intertwined in good community yet. But, but you need to be in relationships where, where those conversations can happen for you and where you can be having those with other people along the way.
It's a necessity. If you want to grow in grace, if you want to grow up in your salvation, this is a necessity, this sort of love surrounding you and you giving this sort of love to other people. So so this sincere love, but but he goes on, he's got more to say. He says this sort of love is also earnest. Do you see that in verse 22? That this is an earnest love. That word earnest is the same word that is used in um, Luke twenty two forty four when it's describing Jesus praying in the garden. He's praying earnestly. Um, same word used in Acts 12, 5, where it's talking about the people of God praying for Peter when he's imprisoned. They're praying earnestly. The, the picture behind that word is if you could picture yourself stretching, like you're all the way down as far as you can go. And then all, I mean, and you literally think your, your, your muscles are about to break. They're about to be stretched and pull apart. When you get down that far and then someone comes along and pushes you down even two, three, four inches further. You ever had that moment? That this is the word earnestly. It's this idea of being stretched to the limit and then going even further, being stretched even further, where it feels like you're going to fall apart, pull apart. That this is earnestly. That, That your love, maybe application here, your love is fervent for people. It is zealous for people. It is initiating love. This is earnest love. Earnest love is an initiating love. That you're not waiting for us to design a program so you can love people. That that you are coming ready to love people. You're coming with love on the radar. You you come into situations and circumstances and rooms and and you're thinking, you're scanning the environment for ways for you to express love. It's, It's that sort of an initiating love that you wake up in the morning thinking, God, you are going to cross my path with people today that need to be loved. And I am your man. I am your woman to love them. I'm going for it. It's that sort of an initiating love. Earnest love is, is, is an enduring love. It's enduring. It doesn't, it doesn't stop. It, there's not like a limit to it. it it's an enduring love. And, and that, that idea of earnest, I think that it implies that it is going to be very difficult at times. That, and let's just take this within the people of God. That there are going to be times when, when you are hurt severely by the people of God, by other Christians. There's going to be time that you're betrayed, you're gossiped about, you're whatever. That, that, that is coming. There's going to be times for that. And, and earnest love says that it, it's enduring, that, that it doesn't stop with another person's sin. It keeps going through that sin. That, that's the sort of love we're talking about. That, that it still values and prioritizes and wants and works for their good, even in the midst of their sin. It's an enduring love. And, and let, I, I think it would be appropriate to just stop and have a pastoral moment here. Um, because I, I think that there's a lot of people in the room who have been deeply hurt by other Christians. I mean, deeply hurt. Where, I mean, you're still probably not even recovered from it yet, sort of hurt. And here's what happens in that moment. I think the natural reflex is self-protection, self-preservation. So, so the, defensive come, the defenses come up and you, become, you begin to stiff arm everyone around you. Like, so so your, your goal in life is to guard your heart now to where now you're not letting any, anyone kind of into that inner, inner side of you. So, so everything is stiff arm. You're in the fetal position, making sure everyone stays out there. And I don't know how many pastors that have been in it for a while, I see in that sort of a cynical, their life is closed down condition. Where they've just been wronged and wounded enough, where, I mean, in their mind, it's just easier to keep people out than to let people in where you might get hurt again. And I think there's a lot of us in that sort of a situation. That the defenses have come up and we have totally stiff-armed everyone. Our goal now is to keep people far enough away where they could never hurt us again. Okay, now, now listen to this. 
If that's you in the room, let me first say this. I am so sorry that you have been wronged and wounded like that by other Christians. On their behalf, let me apologize. Now here's the other side though, is that you cannot live in this command if your love has that sort of a limit on it. You can't. You can't obey this command and and say, I'm gonna keep everyone stiff-armed. You can't obey this command and keep everyone out of your life. You, You can't do it. Like obeying this command means that your heart has to stay open to people. That you have, to, you have to allow people to get close. You have to put your heart back in vulnerable positions. You have to go there. It's an enduring, it's an earnest love. And I want you to listen. For those that are in that situation this morning, I want you to listen to these words from C.S. Lewis as he describes kind of that tension and, and that defense mechanism that says, keep other people out. You're gonna get hurt again, as opposed to opening your heart back up. Um, Listen to what he says. This is in his book, The Four Loves. He says this. He says, I am a safety first creature. Of all arguments against love, none makes so strong an appeal to my nature as this. Careful. Be careful. Be safe. You better watch if you let people in. You better guard yourself. Careful. This might lead you to suffering. To my nature, my temperament, there is a yes to that, he's saying, but not to my conscience. When I respond to that appeal, I seem to myself to be a thousand miles away from Christ. If I am sure of anything, I am sure that his teaching was never meant to confirm my congenital or kind of the way I was born, my personality, my just natural temperament, my congenital preference for a safe investments and limited liabilities. I doubt whether there's anything in me that pleases God less. Listen to what he says. There is no safe investment when it comes to love. There's no safe place you can put your love. There's none. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. But here's the alternative. If you want to make sure of keeping it, your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal, your dog. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, your heart will change. Your heart will not be broken. Your heart will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy or at least the risk of tragedy is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and and discomforts of love is hell. Did you see what he's saying? For for those that have been hurt in the room, that have closed your life down to people, he's saying you've got one of two ways you can go here. You can walk down the path of love where your heart will probably be wrung out again, where it'll probably be broken again. It's gonna be disappointing. All those things are gonna happen again. Or you can go this route and you, you can walk into the casket of your selfishness where your heart will never be broken again. It will become impenetrable, as hard as a rock. And man, can I just encourage you, if, if that's you today, to choose the path of love, to, to walk down that road, to, to make sure that you're obeying this command, this earnest love. And listen, it's for your own good at the end of this. It's for your good at the end of it. So it's earnest, he says. He's got two more words. He uses the word pure. Do you see that? With a pure heart, you've got to love this way with a pure heart. So, so, so what does that mean? That means a love that is unmixed. A love that is unmixed. So I, I think it's really easy to confuse love and manipulation. 
Love is for the glory of God and your good. I am wanting and I am working for your best interest. That's love. Manipulation is for my best interest, I'm working for your best interest. So, so I'm doing you good, working for you good, so you'll find favor. So you, you'll give me favor. So maybe you'll hire me. So, so you'll do this for me. So I can put you in my debt. But, but it's got this ulterior motive to it. It's got this, I'm doing good for you so I can gain s- some weird thing from you, put you in kind of my control. So you'll have to give me now. Th- that's not a pure love. P- Peter is saying, p- pure love is this, for the glory of God, for their good, you are wanting and you are working for their good. That you want to be involved with God in this moment for change in them, for, for their good. But that's pure love. And, and then he gives this one other one. He says brotherly. So you're to love with a sincere brotherly love. Do you see that in verse 22? I think Paul's saying that this sort of love that we're talking about, this loving one another, that it's got a family feel to it. So I think a lot of us, we like to, to draw, draw a sharp distinction between how love would play out in our family between how it would endure with with our husband, with our wife, with our kids, how it would endure there, as opposed to how it would endure kind of in our church family. And Peter's saying, you shouldn't draw that sharp distinction. Dad's in the room. The sharp impulse you have to care for your family, to provide for your family, that that impulse you have to, to work for their best interests, he's saying that should be splashed around to other people as well. That same family fill of love should splash itself out in your neighborhood, in your church, in your home group. That same impulse should should be in all of those different places. It's this brotherly sort of affection that you should love one another as brothers, as sisters, as you maybe would a kid, as you maybe would a mom or dad, that you should have that sort of love for people. Okay, now I want to just take a preemptive strike here. Um, We have been going for two years as Stonegate Church. And by God's grace, I hope he gives us another 30, 40 years together. And over the last two years, we have had very few, what I would call big family feuds, where, where there has been major discord and strife. We, we haven't really had any of those. God's been gracious to us. But listen, those days are coming. They're coming. You, you might just look around at some faces in the room. Just look around. Just get maybe a few faces in your, in your mind. You see some faces around the room? That those are the faces that are going to gossip about you. That those are the faces that are going to put the knife in the back at some point and maybe even give it a twist or two. That those are the same um, faces that, that maybe even when you're down might kick you a time or two. That, that that's all going to happen inside this room. Okay, so I, I want you to know that. It, and listen, if you have not had any little family feuds yet with people in this room, there's only two reasons for that. One is that you don't know them well enough yet or you do not know them long enough. Those are the only two reasons because it's gonna happen. If, if you live together with sinful people, sin's gonna come out. It's gonna destroy some relationships. It's gonna be really difficult. It's gonna make for some difficult situations. Now, okay, hear me in this. You've got two responses when that happens. And it's going to happen. You've got two responses. Here's response number one. You can run. And this is what most people do in our culture. And we'll just take it in our church culture. This is what most people do. When they've got a little feud with somebody, here's how it plays out. They run. They go to a different church. They get away from it. Nine out of ten times when somebody leaves a church, it is not for biblical reasons. It is for petty reasons that, that, that are these family sort of issues going on. That they're not good God-honoring reasons to leave. There are some God-honoring reasons to leave, but that's, that's not them. 
And, and so you've got the decision. You can run. That can be one response. Here's your other decision is you can decide now that I'm going to respond in love to them. That, that when they sin against me, I'm going to respond by wanting and working for their best interest. I'm going after that. I, I am all in for that. But that's going to take a predetermined response from you now. That when people take from you things they could never give back, and they hurt, that you've got a preemptive strategy, pre, you know, a response predetermined that says, I am going to lavish God's love on them. And can I just tell you this? When those moments happen for you, that is going to be one of your opportunities for some of your biggest gospel displays. People aren't impressed when you do good to people who do good to you. But, but the gospel is displayed when, when people who do wrong to you get great things in return from you. It's going to be one of your greatest opportunities for a beautiful display of the gospel in your life. So, so this is the sort of love that he's talking about. It's this brotherly sort of a love. So, so let, me, let me stop. Does that sort of love characterize who you are? Does it mark your life? Do you see evidences of grace that that is there in your life? Okay, and then look at verse two, or chapter two, verse one. And I'm gonna run through these really quickly. Paul, or Peter gives um, five just, just love killers, things that just kill this command to love. That when these things are happening, it makes love an impossibility. You can't do these and love. Look at on these killers of this command in, in chapter two, verse one. So he says, so put away all, and there's five of them, malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and all envy and all slander. So let me just run through these really quickly. He says slander. That if you're gonna love people, you, you can't slander people. So slander are, are these relational um, missiles that, that we kind of lob over to people in the form of words, where we take our words, they're not redemptive, that they're spoken to harm people. They're, they're spoken to, to hurt people. Okay, that, that's slander. When you talk about someone, not with their good in mind, but with their harm in mind. When, when your words are not redemptive about them. And this is the, the number one way it's justified is people will say this. Well, listen, I would say this to their face too. Can I just tell you, it doesn't matter. That doesn't make it right. The, the issue is, should you say it at all? The issue is, are these words redemptive? See, your words are meant by God to be a channel of grace to people. So, so are your words redemptive? When you're talking about anyone here, are, if, if it's not redemptive language, if it's not a redemptive thing that you're saying, then it's probably slander. So, so your words are meant to be redemptive. If, if slander is happening in a place, it robs vulnerability from a place. It makes it almost impossible for love to take root and grow. Um, but he, he gives another one. He says deceit. You've got to put away deceit. If you're going to love like this, deceit cannot be there. Deceit is lying. It, it is um, saying this when that's true. Okay, that, that's deceit. And listen, community love is built on trust and trust is built on truth. And so when truth goes with, with lying, when truth goes, trust goes. And when trust goes, community love goes. That's how the process works itself out. So, so if you are habitually lying, then you are habitually unloving. So if you're lying, that, that is a form of not loving people. So he says, you've got to put that away. And, and then he goes on, he says, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is presenting you as one thing when you know you're a different thing. That's hypocrisy. And listen, if, if, you, if you come in on Sunday mornings wearing a mask, that's hypocrisy. If you come in Sunday morning wearing, this is how life is when life is like burning down all around you, that, that's hypocrisy. It's wearing a mask. And listen, if you came in wearing a mask, here's, you make it impossible for us to love you because we don't know you. 
All we know is who you present to us. So it makes it impossible to actually love you. And it makes it impossible for you to love other people. So, so the mask has to go. And can I, can I just tell you this? We don't expect you to be perfect. So you don't have to pretend like it. You, you don't have to wear a mask. That, that hopefully love in this place is big enough to take your imperfections and to love you towards your best interest. Right? So, so hypocrisy has to go. And, and then he says this one. He says envy. And these last two, envy and malice, they get to the heart. So we're not dealing with actions anymore. Now we're down to the heart. Envy is a thing in the heart. It is this inordinate desire for something that you want it so badly that you hate when other people have it. It's that sort of a thing. It leads to, it leads to lying. It leads to, to slander. It leads to all these other things. But it's this inordinate desire for something. You want it so badly that you just can't stand it that they have it. So a lot of times it's expressed in joy when people don't have it and you do. Or it's, or it's kind of presented as jealousy when they have it and you don't. Okay, this is, this is envy. It's, it's ugly, it's dark. And if you've got envy, you can't be loving people. See, if, if, you're, if you've got envy in you, that sort of bitterness and resentment in you, it means you're looking out for your interest, not their interest. Okay, that, that's envy. And, and then he uses this last one, malice. And this is kind of an all-encompassing kind of a word. I think maybe big picture wise, it is that impulse in you that wants to kill that person when they have wronged you, when they've taken from you, when they've betrayed you. It's that impulse that leads to resentment and bitterness. That, that, that's, that's malice down on a, on a foundational level. And see, malice, it's, its counterpart is forgiveness. See, malice is they've wronged me, so I'm building in resentment toward them. Forgiveness is they have wronged me and I'm absorbing that debt for them. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to suffer on their behalf. Okay, that, that's the opposite. See, there's, there's three things that you can do when you're wronged. Here are the three. Number one is you can go get them and hate them. So you can go get them and get your club and you pound away on them. Okay, so that, that's one. You can go get them and you can hate them. Here's the second one. You cannot go get them and you can hate them. So you can sit on your, your couch, club in hand, clubbing them in, their, in your heart all day long. Okay, just building in resentment and anger and bitterness toward them. So you cannot go get them and you can still hate them. But, but here is the Christian way of love is you can go get them and actually want and, and work for their best interests as you love them. You go get them. When they send against you, you go get them and you love them. See, that is the way of Christian love. That's what Christian love, how it expresses itself. And that does not mean that you sweep uh, sin under the rug. You, you can work for justice when you're sinned against without a vengeful heart. You, you can work for justice with a heart that wants and is working for their best all in that. So, so this is the path of love. Okay, and we'll end with this. The command and its capacity. As I just think about this, I, I don't know when you hear this, what this feels like and sounds like to you. Here's what it feels like to me. How is that possible? How is this sort of love, how are we even capable of that? Where does the capacity for that come from? I mean, I look at this and think, how do you love like that sort of brotherly love when, when they have hurt you like that? How do you love like this enduring, this earnest love when they have wronged you in that sort of, how does that work itself out? How do you do that? And, and Peter gives the response here in verse 22 and 23. Verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. He's going to surround it with the gospel. That's one part. In light of that, he says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Verse 23, since 
because. You can do this because of, of this. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. It's as if Peter is saying, this command is so difficult and so demanding that you will never be able to do this by yourself. You would never be able to do this on your own. You'll never be able to do this without and apart from the supernatural work of God in your heart. You see how he surrounds it with these bookends of the gospel? Verse 23. Love one another earnestly? How? Like, how how are we going to do that? Since, therefore, because you have been born again. See, the only way you can love people like this is for you to be born again. That's the theological term, regeneration. It is the supernatural work of God where he comes in and, and, and remakes, he reorients, he redesigns your insides. It's as if he comes in and plants in you an entirely new DNA. This is 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that he comes in supernaturally and makes you a new creation. See, apart from God doing that, you can never love like this. Apart from God doing that supernatural work in you, this whole thing is an impossibility. Apart from God making you born again, regenerating you, you can never love this in this sort of a way. It's an impossibility. But but he also has one thing on the top end of this passage in verse 22. So it's, it's only possible when God does this work of, of making you born again, but the first part of that, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. And so on the top end of that passage, he says, and by the way, when he's saying obedience to the truth, that that is Peter's language to say that you have responded in faith to all that God has done for you. Obedience to the truth equals, for Peter's language, uh, responding in faith. If you look at uh, um, chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 4, verse 17, all the same language. uses this obedience language to talk about responding to God in faith, being a believer in God. And so here's what Peter is saying. Apart from God doing this supernatural thing where, where your heart is remade, and then you responding in faith to God, like you realizing that, that you are a sinner, that, that your sin has separated you from God, it has put you in, the, like the, in line of, of the wrath of God and condemnation of God, that you're in desperate need of grace, of redemption, of rescue, and that God's means of rescue is Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. And then you respond to that in faith. And faith is a big biblical word. It's trusting God, surrendering your life, saying, God, I'm yours. And then it's treasuring God above all things, loving God above all things. And the Bible says when that happens, when we respond in faith to God, that, that he adopts us into his family. He reconciles us. He, he sends the spirit to indwell us, to live inside of us, to empower this sort of love, to, to make this sort of love possible for you. But, but apart from that, apart from you responding in faith to God, the spirit living in you, apart from that, you can never do this. So, so maybe this would be an appropriate way to, to, to finish this morning. If you're in the room and you've never trusted Jesus, you've never responded in faith, trusting and treasuring him above all things, then then maybe this would be a great way for for you to end today is by responding in faith to him. But by saying, God, here is my life. You've got it. Take it. And, And here's the beautiful thing. The Bible says in that moment that he saves you. The spirit indwells you, empowers this sort of living. So if that hasn't happened for you, may this be your day. Amen? Let's pray together. We're going to finish today by um, responding to God with with communion. And I I think it's a perfect way to to end this morning. The the only way that this sort of a love can, 
the capacity can be created, one, and, and this capacity can be sustained throughout your life, the only way this sort of love can happen, can be sustained, can be splashed around the people, the only way it can happen is for you to be consistently looking at how God has loved you through Jesus. That's the only way. That's the only thing that can create this sort of love for people. And so maybe to use the imagery of a few weeks ago, maybe it would be good for you um, to just get before the cross and to see the ocean of God's love that is there. For, For you to stand on the shore of that ocean of God's love and to hear the waves break into the beach these waves of God's love that that say you are so sinful that Jesus had to die for you. that's, That's who you are before God. But that you are so loved by God that Jesus was glad to die for you. So the only way we, we, we can love the unlovely, the only way that will happen for you is to know that you were unlovely and that Jesus loved you. Man, can you hear the, the waves of God's love there? When we take the, the body and, and the blood, that this bread and this juice today, that, that what you're doing there is, is saying, Jesus, your body was broken for me out of great love for the unlovely. And, and when you take the juice, you're saying, your blood was spilled for me, the unlovely. God, this is how you loved me. This is how you love me. And so may God give you a tangible sense of that. A tangible sense of you were unlovely and God came after you. He wanted and he worked for your best interest. And may it create and sustain a radical and reckless love for people. And so we'll take communion this morning and and this is how it works for us. Um, you'll, you'll get the bread, dip it in the juice, and, and do all of that there. And dads, I'd encourage you to maybe pray over your, your families before you come up. Um, you don't have to rush up. Kevin's going to sing a couple of songs. But, but here's the thing with communion, is before you take it this morning, you need to be right with God. And, and that means if, if you've got issues with people in the room, then, then Matthew 5 would say you need to go deal with that, and then, and then you come up. Maybe there needs to be a phone call before you come up. Maybe there needs to be repentance before you come up. The, the issue is you need to be right with God before, before you do that. And if you're not a believer in the room, here would be my encouragement for you, is before you take communion, here's what we would love to see happen, is for you to take Christ, trusting and treasuring him, and, and faith responding to him. And the Bible says he'll save you in that moment, this moment. So God, will you, will you work these things into us, God? By your grace, will you drive into us an earnest love, a sincere love, a pure love, a brotherly love? God, will you do that? God, I pray that, that you might purge from this place all of these killers of this command. Malice, envy, slander. God, I pray for those who, who feel like they're living behind a mask this morning. God, that they might put down the mask and not live in hypocrisy. So God, will you work that into us? God, will you make us a people who have this defining mark of them, of of love? God, for those that, that, that need a rough edge, that are just too nice, God, I pray that this morning you would give them 
good steel in their spine. God, that you would put that, that rough edge on them so that when, when it's called for, they, they can be that. And God, for those that are insensitive in the way they love and that speak truth, God, I pray that you might knock off that edge today. So God, will you, will you help us here? God, it's by your grace. And in your good name we pray, amen. So when you're ready, you can come up and, and take communion. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.